When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B3 of Phoebus. It was Juba's first campaign, and he had yet to draw his sword. The city of Pelusium had always been Egypt's first line of defense against foreign invasion. But instead of offering heavy resistance, its garrison commander, a man named Seleucus, surrendered to Octavian without a fight. The eastern gateway to Egypt was open, and a second army, under Cornelius Gallus, was moving in from the west. In Alexandria, Antony and Cleopatra must have realized that time was running out. Octavian's victory the previous year at the Battle of Actium had been decisive. Antony's fleet had been crushed, his legions had deserted him, and his foreign allies had returned home to wait for Octavian's judgment. That judgment had been, for the most part, lenient since Octavian was already thinking of Rome's needs beyond the current conflict. Only one noble from the Syrian city of Amisa was singled out for later execution. But in the wake of Actium, Octavian had been unable to press his advantage. Instead, he'd been forced to return to Rome to deal with an emerging crisis a revolt by former soldiers over land and back pay. Octavian resolved the crisis by giving them the land of Antony's allies and the back pay out of his own pocket. The war against Antony was pushing Octavian never deeper into debt. But, of course, once Egypt was his, money would no longer be a problem. Meanwhile, Cleopatra turned her attention to building both alliances and escape routes. First, she'd cut off the head of the captive Armenian king Artavasdes and sent it to the rival king of Media, also confusingly named Artavasdes, hoping to curry favor. She then worked to reopen the canal from the Nile to the Red Sea and even started dragging her fleet overland. 
If she could somehow shift the conflict to another arena, maybe she could buy more time. Unfortunately, Octavian had predicted just such a move, and had the Roman governor of Syria, Quintus Didius, induce King Malchus of Petra to cut off any escape. The first ships drawn up in Red Sea harbors were immediately set ablaze by the Nabataeans. At around the same time, Didius also diverted an army of hopped-up Anatolian gladiators from coming to Antony's aid, by offering them housing in a nice Syrian suburb. After these odd episodes, the rest of the winter passed in silence. For Octavian, time back in Rome meant time with his family, particularly his wife Livia and his sister Octavia. After they'd been evicted from Antony's home, Octavian had resettled Octavia's family in another house near his own. Octavian visited the house frequently, paying special attention to Marcellus and Tiberius, both now eleven years old. This made their foster brother Juba seventeen, an adult in Roman eyes and old enough to fight for the Republic. Whether he raised the issue or Octavian did, the next spring saw Juba marching toward Egypt with Octavian's legions. Ten days after Pelusium, they reached the outskirts of Alexandria. Octavian likely had fresh intelligence confirming Antony and Cleopatra were still in the city. Antony had been out west, fighting Cornelius Gallus in Peritoneum. But when he learned of Pelusium's fall, he'd returned to the capital. As Octavian's army advanced on the Hippodrome, they found Antony there waiting for them. Hoping to catch Octavian's forces exhausted at the end of a long march, Antony immediately led his troops in a lightning assault, one that routed Octavian's cavalry and drove his army back to the safety of their camp. That evening, Juba was present in Octavian's tent, along with Agrippa and other senior aides, when a soldier came bearing a message from Antony. The man made a striking figure, clad in a gold breastplate and gold helmet, gifts from Cleopatra for his role in the day's skirmish. The message he brought was actually an offer. Antony proposed to settle the war with Octavian through single combat. Octavian declined, telling the man that Antony has many ways of dying. In the morning, Antony's infantry took up positions on the hills in front of the city, while his ships put to sea and closed with Octavian's fleet. Juba soon expected to hear the crush of timber and the shouts of men. But instead, he watched in amazement as Antony's fleet assumed formation alongside Octavian's ships. They had all deserted him. At the same time, Antony's cavalry rode for Octavian's lines and also surrendered. His infantry split, with some crossing over and others retreating behind the city walls. Just like that, the battle for Alexandria was over. That evening, word spread through Octavian's camp that Antony was dead. 
Shortly after the mass desertions, he'd run himself through the stomach with his sword. One of his bodyguards had even brought the bloodstained weapon to Octavian as proof. There were also rumors that Octavian had been upset by the news, but that was kind of a tough sell. As for what Juba might have felt, your guess is as good as mine. Antony left behind a pretty complicated legacy. Octavian's focus now shifted to Cleopatra. Juba heard she'd barricaded herself inside her own tomb, near the Temple of Isis, along with all her treasures. Ominously, she'd also packed the monument with enough wood and combustibles to make a fitting funeral pyre. Octavian had been in secret communications with Cleopatra since the spring. As his legions passed through Anatolia, Cleopatra's envoy, a tutor named Euphronios, had come to negotiate Caesarian succession to the Egyptian throne. The request was a non-starter, but Octavian offered leniency to Cleopatra if Mark Antony were no longer in the picture. Since then, the lines of communication had been kept open. It was even thought that Cleopatra had ordered the surrender of both Pelusium and Alexandria to avoid antagonizing the Romans. Octavian's latest envoy was a man named Proculius, who'd once served with Antony. Juba could guess at his likely M.O. On Octavian's authority, he'd offer Cleopatra whatever it took to earn her trust and coax her from the tomb. Juba knew from personal experience the value of royal prisoners in a triumph. Proculius had already learned that Cleopatra's children had been sent south to safety, and Octavian made arrangements to have them retrieved. As negotiations dragged on, Octavian brought his legions from their camp into the city and set up a makeshift command center in the gymnasium. It was here that the citizens of Alexandria lined up to beg their new ruler for mercy. In a magnanimous mood, Octavian told them there would be no punishment. In honor of their magnificent city and its legendary founder, Alexander the Great, Octavian held its citizens blameless for the actions of their rulers. The city's magnificence was no exaggeration. To Juba, who'd spent several years in Athens, Alexandria must have presented the idealized image of a world capital. The royal palaces, great theater and gymnasium, the monumental temples to Poseidon, Saturn, and Isis, the Mausoleum of Alexander, the Serapium, the great lighthouse of Pharos, and the museum with its famous library all testified to the greatness of the Ptolemies, the most enduring of Alexander's successors. In the days that followed, Juba learned that his foster brother, Antony's eldest son Antillus, had been captured and killed by Octavian's troops. He also learned that Cleopatra's children by Mark Antony had been returned safely to Alexandria. Juba suspected that Proculius's negotiations would now contain a new element, threats against their lives. If so, the approach backfired. 
Word soon spread that Cleopatra had also killed herself, using the bite of a snake, and been found arrayed in all her royal finery and lying on a golden couch. Juba never learned the precise fate of Caesarion, her son by Julius Caesar, but a cryptic line had started to make the rounds. Not a good thing were a Caesar too many. His victory now complete, Octavian took some time to visit the city's monuments. Of greatest interest was the Mausoleum of Alexander, which contained the body of the great hero. Juba watched as Octavian lightly touched the preserved face, only to see a portion of it turn to dust. When the Egyptians offered to show him the tombs of the Ptolemies, Octavian told them, I wanted to see a king, not corpses. Soon enough, Octavian was preparing for his return to Rome. Administration of the new Roman province of Egypt was put in the hands of Cornelius Gallus, whose main responsibilities were ensuring domestic tranquility and a steady supply of grain. There was also one additional caveat. No Roman senator or high official was to visit the province without Octavian's express permission. The treasures of Alexandria were loaded aboard Roman ships, along with additional funds extorted from wealthy locals. One Alexandrine had even paid the Romans a vast fortune to preserve the statues of Cleopatra, even as those of Mark Antony were torn down. Just as he'd predicted, Octavian's money troubles were far behind him. Octavian passed the winter in Anatolia, attending to Roman interests in the east, and it was the summer of 29 BC before he arrived back in Rome. He was met at the city gates by both the Senate and the Vestal Virgins, and citywide sacrifices were held in his honor. While he'd been away, he'd been granted yet another raft of honors, including permission to celebrate separate triumphs for his victories in Actium and Egypt. Monumental arches were being constructed in both Brindisium and the Roman Forum, and all banquets, public or private, were now to pour a libation to Octavian's health. Even more remarkably, the doors to the Temple of Janus had been closed, signifying for the first time since Julius Caesar had crossed the Rubicon that Rome was finally at peace. Meanwhile, all monuments to Mark Antony had been quietly removed, and his birthday declared accursed. In addition, no future child of the Antonii would be allowed to have the name Marcus. It was also agreed that Octavian's triumphs would be celebrated over Cleopatra alone. No mention would be made of either Antony or the Romans who'd fought beside him. In all, Octavian celebrated three triumphs, each on a separate day. The first was for his pacification of Illyricum, accomplished shortly after his defeat of Sextus Pompey. The second was for his victory at Actium, and the third was for the conquest of Egypt. It was in the last that Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene were forced to march, arrayed like sun and moon and with golden chains around their necks. 
Of course, the entire scenario was complicated by the fact that the twins had now joined Octavia's household. In fact, Juba was effectively older foster brother to no less than 11 children. Just to jog your memory, that's Eulus Antonius, younger brother of Antillus, at 16, Marcellus and Tiberius, both at 13, Marcella Major and Marcella Minor, at 12 and 11, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, both at 11, Julia and Antonia Major, at 10, Drusus at 9, and Antonia Minor, at 7. Tiberius Claudius Nero, the biological father of Tiberius and Drusus, had died four years earlier, and the boys now lived full-time with Octavian and Livia. Maybe it's just me, but a family that big just screams reality series. Keeping up with the Octavians? Maybe not. Anyway, never fear. I have a nice, helpful family tree posted on the Ancient World website. The households were jointly run by Octavia and Livia, and Octavian often shared meals with the family. The children soon became familiar with the powerful figures of Octavian's inner circle, including his military advisor Agrippa and his political advisor Macinus. Octavian's table was also graced by a large cross-section of other Roman notables. The poets Horace and Virgil, the historian Livy, the geographer Strabo, and the military engineer Vitruvius were all occasional guests. Strabo and Juba in particular became very close friends, and would continue to correspond even when settled at opposite ends of the Roman world. Inspired by the luminaries all around him, Juba soon began to write his own works. His earliest was Roman Archaeology, a study of Roman history from the city's foundation through the early 1st century BC. While such works were fairly common in the period, Juba's was considered among the most authoritative, which probably isn't too surprising. Being a member of Octavian's family likely gave Juba access to state archives unavailable to his contemporaries. Juba's second work, Resemblances, was an attempt to derive Latin words from Greek. This was also a common theme at the time, justifying Rome's superiority through its ties to older and more sophisticated cultures. His early output was rounded out by two additional works, On Painting and Theatrical History. The latter covered the production of comedy and drama, with particular emphasis on the role of musical instruments. So it's pretty obvious that, even as a young man, Juba was both intellectually curious and extremely knowledgeable across a wide variety of subjects. The resurgence in scholarship was only one aspect of Octavian's Rome. It was also the era when Octavian's architectural revolution partly inspired by his visit to Alexandria, was gradually transforming the capital from a city of brick to a city of marble. The effort was spearheaded by Octavian's friend and colleague, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, who shared three consulships with Octavian and also married Octavian's niece, Marcella Major. 
Meanwhile, Octavian himself was undergoing a similar recreation. Adorned with the titles of Augustus and Princeps, and granted effective control over the most critical Roman provinces, which coincidentally happened to be the ones holding the most legions. The remaining provinces were left to the Senate to manage. This arrangement was to last for ten years, by which time Octavian pledged to pacify all the provinces under his care. Even such towering successes were occasionally tempered by tragedies at home and frustrations abroad. Under the former was the death of Alexander Helios, last surviving son of Antony and Cleopatra, and last surviving brother of Cleopatra Selene. Since the triumph, the twins had been treated as full members of Octavius' household, and the whole family mourned his loss. Under the latter were ongoing campaigns against rebellious tribes in the West. In late 27 BC, with his initial reforms in place, Octavian decided to take personal command of the effort. Riding out from Rome with his Praetorian cohort, Octavian was also accompanied by Juba. While the Egyptian campaign had taught him something of logistics and intelligence, Juba had still seen little of actual combat. Octavian had plans for Juba, just as he did for everyone in his extended family, and combat experience was a prerequisite for the role he had in mind. Octavian first dealt with ongoing civil wars in Gaul before moving over the Pyrenees into Iberia. Juba likely took part in several engagements against hostile mountain tribes before the region was finally pacified. Around the same time, Octavian received unsettling reports that Cornelius Gallus, the general left in charge of Egypt, was grossly abusing his authority, bad-mouthing Octavian, erecting statues of himself all over the country, and carving a list of his achievements into the Great Pyramid. Dude, seriously. In response, Octavian and the Senate stripped Gallus of his titles and property and exiled him from Roman territory. Quite reasonably, all things considered, the dishonored general chose suicide instead. 25 BC saw new revolts by the Cantabri and the Asturias, who held the Iberian side of the Pyrenees. Returning to the region, Octavian took not only Juba, but also his nephew Marcellus and stepson Tiberius, both of whom had now reached military age. Having largely grown up together, and now reunited as fellow soldiers, the young men were eager to win Octavian a quick and decisive victory. Unfortunately, the campaign degenerated into a long, hard-fought slog. Both enemy tribes were experts in mountain warfare, and used clever ambushes and their skill with javelins to deadly effect. Octavian eventually took sick and retired to the provincial capital of Terraco. In his absence, the young men continued to prosecute the war under the command of Gaius Antistius. Eventually, the Asture stronghold was captured and both tribes were subdued. At the war's conclusion, Octavian announced local land grants to his retiring troops, 
He also gave Marcellus and Tiberius permission to hold celebrations for the soldiers remaining in the legions. It was a clear sign that he both approved of their conduct in the campaign and was grooming them to be future leaders. Juba had also impressed Octavian, and shortly after the campaign, Octavian finally told him of his plans. And Juba, you might want to sit down for this one. Here, let me pour you a cup of wine. Okay, at 23 years old, Juba had proven himself to be a capable soldier, a gifted scholar, and a loyal member of both Octavian's family and the Roman Republic. As his first reward, Juba was being granted formal Roman citizenship, which was pretty cool, but that was just the warm-up. Second, Juba was born to be a king, with a royal bloodline reaching all the way back to Numidia's founder, Massinissa. But Numidia was now a Roman province, along with Carthage, Egypt, Cyrenaica, and the rest of North Africa. There was only one exception. Stretching west from Numidia to the Atlantic was the sprawling kingdom of Mauritania. Until recently, the land had been ruled by two brothers, one of whom had backed Antony and the other Octavian in the recent civil war. But both men had recently died without heirs. Octavian had decided that Juba was to be king of Mauritania. Third, Juba would need a suitable queen to help him govern the nation. This had also been decided. Juba was to marry his foster sister, the 15-year-old Cleopatra Selene. Like Juba, Selene already had North African ties, and would also bring the enormous prestige of her Ptolemaic lineage. It was elegant math at once a means to bring a troublesome territory into the Roman fold, a fitting and generous gift to two fostered royal offspring, and a way to exile Cleopatra's last child from Rome in all but name. It was, in other words, perfect Octavian logic. The marriage took place in late 25 BC, and must have been the event of the season. Well, okay, the second event of the season, since Octavian's only daughter, Julia, had married his nephew, Marcellus, earlier that year. But still, two members of Rome's leading family, both with ancient royal pedigrees and about to be shipped off to found a new ruling dynasty, didn't just get married every other day. Juba and Selene's wedding was likely attended by their large extended family, many of whom Juba had known all his life, along with a bewildering assortment of close family friends, powerful allies, eminent scholars, and other notables. With Octavian still recuperating in Iberia, his colleague Agrippa likely presided over the ceremony, just as he had at the recent wedding of Julia and Marcellus. The renowned Greek poet Cronagoras of Mytilene wrote an epigram for the occasion. Great neighboring nations of the world, which the Nile, swollen from black Ethiopia, divides, you have created common kings of both through marriage, making one race of Egyptians and Libyans.
Let the children of kings in turn hold from their fathers a strong rule over both lands. The promise of the words was fitting, but the truth, as always, was a bit more complicated. Rome had destroyed their families, taken their ancestral lands, and humiliated them both in public spectacles. But Rome had also embraced them, nurtured them, and was now raising them up to the highest station imaginable. Exactly how these competing strains would merge to shape their legacy would only unfold in time. The only certainty was that now it would happen in Mauritania. Mauritania.